Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative that's co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we're sharing the closing keynote conversation from the 2023 Collective Impact Action Summit, featuring Krista Tippett. This conversation explores questions around what it means to imagine and create a world that we all want to be part of together. Krista Tippett is a journalist, a National Humanities Medalist, a best-selling author, and founder of the On Being Project, a groundbreaking media and public life initiative that uplifts and celebrates deep thinking and conversations around what it means to be here together in this world. In this fireside chat, Krista joins my forum colleague, Cindy Santos, who is Senior Associate at the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. Cindy and Krista discuss together what it means to create new spaces, spaces that nurture belonging, center relationships, and value healing, joy, and connection. Let's tune in. So today I have the absolute honor and privilege to be in conversation with Krista Tippett. Among Krista's many accomplishments, I will share that she is a Peabody Award-winning journalist and National Humanities Medalist, the author of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living, and the host of On Being, a podcast about the big questions of meaning. Krista has been in conversation with many thinkers and dreamers and doers familiar to us, Isabel Wilkerson, Brian Stevenson, Priya Parker, who joined us at last year's um, Action Summit. And to me, what each of these conversations have in common is promise. Mm -hmm. And that's the promise that we can be together in our full humanity. Um, So we're here today because you too are thinkers, you're dreamers, and you're doers. And you work tirelessly in your communities to pursue equity, to center the voices and experiences of the communities in which you work, and to create the world that we want to see. You also believe in that promise. So Krista, when you and I talked, um, I mentioned a poem that you wrote. And what you said was, I actually don't think of it as a poem. I think of it as my mission statement. Mm. And the mission statement is absolutely embodied in all of your work. And it reads, enough of us across all of our differences see that we have a world to remake. And we want to orient towards that possibility. We want to meet what is hard and what is hurting. We want to rise to what is beautiful and life-giving. And we want to do that where we live. And we want to do that alongside others. So as you've been on your journey, Krista, what has compelled you to invite people across differences to join you in embracing complexity? Well, um, thank you, Cindy. I, yeah, what I also said to you when you said that you read it as a poem, I, I loved it that you read it as a poem. Um, you know, just the way you asked that question, what that what that draws forth from me is that um, complexity is the reality, right? And um, it's hard for us to hold that. It's hard to use our words in a way that always conveys that. Um, but I'm drawn to reality, right? And I and I want to investigate that, and I want to investigate in its fullness. And in terms of across our differences, you know. I think what I'm also what I'm also deeply deeply interested in is is our is wholeness, right? And our kinship to each other. And we have so many ways of masking that and fighting with it and um uh you know, pretending it's not true and organizing, structuring our world like it's not true. But to me, you know, that is also an insistence on the reality of things that Beneath it all, you know, overarching, um, there is this fact, I mean, this this phrase of belonging, right, which we want to live into, it, it's a reality that we have to live into. It's not something we have to make true. 
but that's all hard to wrap our minds around because it's not the way we've structured our world up to now. Yeah, and, you know, I think as we think about structuring our world, um, to me it takes having a vision of what we want our world to look like. Yeah. And your conversations on, on being really also, in addition to you struggling and grappling with um, with complexity, you um, challenge your listeners to also sit in that complexity. Yeah. Um, and as I'm thinking about the group of folks that are here, there's really nothing more complex than trying to remake our world. And yet the people on the Zoom are all over the world, right? And we're, they're collectively working in their communities to remake that world. Mm-hmm. And as I think about um, what more complex, again, than remaking our world, um, what does it really take, right, in the mix of all of this complexity to stay oriented towards yeah. that possibility that we can do it. We can remake our world. How can we stay oriented towards that? Yeah. You know, I was looking at your, I was looking at the site and some of the language that you've used around this, this conference. And, you know, I see a lot of, I see language of healing and being healing centered and centered. Right. And, um, and the notion of belonging, I think something that's become clear to me also as somebody who's lived 60 years, um, I think there's a new, sensibility a new there there's some been some transformation in the understanding of what it means to be um an activist for 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 what our generation in time is called to in terms of this remaking of the world i think there's an i think that in previous generations um you know it is a pattern in history and it's certainly a pattern in american history it's a, in movements of an incredible depletion that follows great successes, right? Great change. And I feel like this generation, and I'm I'm not really talking about ages. I mean, I really mean our generation in time, but I think younger generations obviously are going to, you know, that's where so much of the energy and so much of the vision is. Um, and we all have to walk alongside each other. Um, but I think there's this new commitment to, Understanding that to if we're if we're going to create a healed, transformed world, we also have to we have to work on the healing and transformation of ourselves, and that is also about about being in it for the long haul, right? And I I, I do think that being alive right now in this century, um, it's very clear that the that the challenges that we're facing, that the callings that we have, um, you know, ecological, racial economic, political, um, and all the things, spiritual, all the things that fall under those large categories, those are callings to the rest of our lifetime, right? This is not something that's going to be, there are things that we can do today and tomorrow and in 10 years, but the bigger picture is something that we are all going to collectively be bringing into being um, in generational time. And I think if, if that is true, and it is true, that just brings home in a whole new way, a whole new way, how each and every one of us in our movements and our communities have to build in, staying, getting centered, and always getting recentered, and 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 reaching for healing when that's what we need, and also even having people around us who. On the days that it is too much to, for us to ask of ourselves to be hopeful, <laughs> to have other people who can carry those things, and even a sense of belonging when that eludes us, when we don't feel it. Um, and this is always actually the way the great virtues have worked. They were never supposed to be individual things, privately, something you privately invested in and privately carried. Um, so all, all of that comes to me right now. You know, when you talk about uh, just this, these new sensibilities and that transformation, um, and you use the word activism and movement, right? We talk about movement building quite a bit in our work. And in something that you wrote, you use the word critical yeast. Yes. Um, so what does that mean? And how does it really relate to transformation and, and remaking our world? So, so I have a, a very important teacher who has given me that phrase, um, and that is John Paul Lederach, and he is a peace, peace builder. 
And he's one of the people in our world. And I, I love finding these people. Um, the people who are, you know, he's when, 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 uh, when there's been a, a transformation of a society, the end of a war, you know, the people who are not standing up on stage, <laughs> but the people who've been kind of making this happen. He's the person who in Colombia, in Northern Ireland, in Nepal, in South Africa, has been one of these people just stitching something together over decades. And one of the things that John Paul has said as a student, as a scholar, and as a practitioner, and he's very influential in the field of conflict resolution. Um, he prefers to talk about conflict transformation. Um, yeah, somebody's linking to him. At, um, and at, um, conflict transformation, because one thing he says is that there are tools to transform a conflict or to resolve a conflict, but it's only if you transform the conditions that gave rise to that conflict. Um, that, that's really what he wants to work on now, because if you don't transform the conditions, the conflict will reinvent itself, right? And this is also a pattern in our world. One of the things he says is that where he's seen conflict transformation happen at small scales, at large scales, he says that we tend... Um, to focus culturally um, in terms of in media on critical mass, you know, that moment in, when a movement suddenly turns into massive bodies on the street. But he says that where there is transformation that happens over time, what precedes and, and follows and what, what, what sows that field for sustained transformation is what he calls critical yeast. And that it starts with small groups of people in a new quality, in, in unlikely combinations, in a new quality of relationship. I find, I have found since I started working with this, and this is my, this is, this is our theory of change, really. You, there's something about change at a human scale that makes change at a societal scale possible. It's very hard to be patient about that, and it's not how all change happens. But, um, it's change at the speed of relationship, which is what we actually know, right, is, is needed to transform human beings. Um, and there are other, you know, um, there, I, I, what I, what I found as I interview people like John Lewis or, you know, Vincent Harding or Wangari Matai, um, other kinds of people in other kinds of places, they all describe with different words. Um, this language that that I that I have decided to use and that 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 feels that means so much to me and that I see at work, which is that what we're doing is um, thinking about critical yeast and uh, connective tissue between all the incredible work and love and care and genius and social creativity that's out there that's represented in this Zoom room. Um, and that's also, I think, about us, us, us feeling accompanied enough, which is not that everybody gets it, but accompanied enough and, and taking a long view um, of what we're after and what we're working for. And that long view also gives us the space to keep body and soul together along the way. That reminds me so much of a conversation that you had with Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Yes, I was thinking about that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what I'm thinking about is what, what, what you say about wholeness in that conversation. Um, and what you say is when you describe that conversation, that the invitation here is to open wide your powerful reality shifting imagination your heart, your energy, your will, and the possibility of wholeness, yeah. and how do we live into that? And so with, you know, I, I'm wondering, what does it mean to be wide open, right? To be in that wholeness, to be able to use our imagination, again, to continue to think about everything that's possible in, in terms of transformation. Yeah. Well, you know, and I just, I want to say, um, you you mentioned you know the importance of of vision um even even and especially when what one is engaged in is very tangible right that is working on what is right before us and all around us and um i so loved having that conversation with her especially because the language of abolition you know has has 
it has certain it's landed in this very one dimensional way um, in the United States, for sure. And and to get so clear to be to be so inspired by, you know, this large, spacious vision she has of what this is all for. Right. This world that we have to make. Um, that is the point of it. It's it's not the action itself. It's the world that it's that it's bringing about. Um, and oh, so you were, yeah. And so you know, the imagination. Well, I don't know. So let me say, I think probably the most under it, the human imagination is perhaps what we most undervalue, even when we talk about social change. Um, you know, I think about. I think about John Lewis saying to me, you know, we had to live as if, right? I mean, and I think that, again, with different language, that's something that I've found to be an orientation of people who have shifted some part of the world on its axis. And this is true of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. You see a vision of the world we want to live in, the world we want all of our children to inherit. Um, and that is not fanciful, right? I think the if we have a small vision, we're we're stepping into a smaller space, right? Like this is create this is building the magnitude in which we will be creative and will act. And you know, our imaginations are are, are you know are literally this kind of use of the imagination is is a leap of you know a leap of the imagination that have real world consequences. Nothing better has ever been created without someone seeing that thing they wanted to walk into and then making that path into it. And that is true of that is true of massive social transformation as much as it's true of private stories. You know, when I think about um, what it takes, right, to have that imagination, to um, to be able to achieve a ma- massive transformation, and what we've talked about in terms of wholeness and working across differences and healing. You mentioned healing. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, of course, that we've all been reckoning, reckoning with is really the harms caused by racial inequity. And in the midst of that reckoning, um, to your point about there, there are folks that have this expans- expansive vision of what this world could be like, and they're bold and they're brave and they're out there really calling for justice. And I would say the folks in, in this space are, right? And, um, you know, when you talk about on being, one thing that you say is that we meet longings for justice and healing by equipping for reflection, repair, and joy. Mm-hmm. So what's that relationship? What's the relationship between justice, healing, repair, and ultimately joy? Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, you know, I was at a gathering, I think it must have been maybe 2018, something like that. feels like ancient history. And a, a quite senior, you know, serious powerful person on some stage I was on asked how could we one possibly be joyful in a moment like this and that just felt wrong to me but I mean it it is a it's a reasonable statement to make but it 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 kind of set me off on this exploration and then what I found is that there that there has been something surfacing. And I think of Adrian Marie Brown with pleasure activism. And I think of Ross Gay and, you know, his book of delight. And suddenly it's one of these things. If you, if you hear it once or you start looking for it, you find that it's everywhere. Yes. There, there's so many examples people are putting in the chat. Um, so I, I didn't discover this. I just, I think I opened to it. And I think it also is something. You know, what I said a minute ago about this generation in time, understanding that the work is for the long haul, the work is for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, joy, what I've, what I've, what I've come to understand is that joy is, it, joy is not a privilege. Right? 
Joy is a human birthright. It is a life-giving, resilience-making human birthright. I was talking to, I think it was Drew Lanham, who's an ornithologist and a poet, but who's actually done incredible things, talking about the history, you know, some of our hardest histories through the migration of birds, right? Somebody who just sees the big picture and is an incredible human being. I think he said, joy is the justice we give to ourselves. He said, joy is that thing that no one can take away from us. It's not exactly, but, you know, in the midst of all the things the world can take away. We find people fiercely insisting that, you know, joy is fuel. And that is, you know, again, I think the world I grew up in, activists a lot of times were just very serious, earnest people who weren't allowed to have joy because that would be somehow to dismiss the gravity of what we're struggling with and actually the paradoxical opposite is true this is this complexity yeah i mean as we think about that i i think that we've gotten there's so many more conversations about rest and play um and how those things are really nurturing for us and um i really appreciate um joy is the justice that we give ourselves yeah and, um, you know, in, in everything that we do, a piece of um, just going back to healing is um, there was a conversation, well, in your poem, and then there was a conversation that you had um, with Ruby Sales about um, tell me what hurts, right? Yeah. And I think that we, we have this balance. Of course, we can feel, um, we can really make sure that we're in spaces where we're giving ourselves space for joy. Um, and we're surrounding ourselves with folks that can really support us um, to have that joy. But the reality is that we're facing, you know, the yeah. issues that we face. And, and there's so much healing that has to happen. And I'm curious, you know, as you think about healing, um, how might we face what is hurt and what is hurting yeah. and still, I, I go back to still being oriented towards the possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, in a life, in a human life, as we go through all the things we go through, as we learn, that is a goal, right? That we, that we, that we have some balance and that, you know, at any given moment, we might be, <laughs> more on one side of you know we might we might be deep in the darkness but um or we might be exhilarated but i think i think part of the challenge of of becoming whole of of being healthy of holding it all together is, is about you know being able to know all those places and those potentialities in ourselves and i think you know this idea of how to using becoming a person who can use joy as fuel i really think that's a gift and i also think it's something that we can practice and I think that's, I think that's what, you know, I think that's what Adrienne Marie Brown, for example, I kind of think that's what she's, how she's using that and kind of being a teacher in that way. Um, yeah, Ruby Sales. I mean, let's talk about that. You know, the, Ruby, that's such an important question that she learned. That was a question that she learned to ask. And this is, you know, in the 60s. Um, when she was in the high, that kind of height of her activism or that early activism, and it was a question she kind of stumbled on. It was a question she felt she felt called to ask in a certain situation, and then she realized that is a question that you can put into a room and it can open so much. It can open a person. It can open a space in which people talk at a different level about what is really happening and what they're struggling with and what we have to, you know, those of us who want to be present to that have to meet, where does it hurt? And, um, you know, just think about how different that question is, even from a lot of the questions we ask in social service situations, right? We, 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 we tend to ask about needs um, or about numbers. Um, I feel like in our life together, writ large, uh, 
where we're so fractured and there's so much animosity and again so much of this division which for me just tragically masks our belonging to each other um the thing that we don't know how to talk about in that larger sphere is what hurts and what we're afraid of and what we know in human lives and it, let's just say in a family um those things that we don't know what to talk about, those are things you don't know how to talk about, those stories we're not telling, those histories we're not mentioning, um, those traumas we're not mentioning are haunting us, right? They end up defining us. So somehow this paradoxical calling to be whole um, and 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 this this wonderful invitation that we can use joy as a fuel um that we can fiercely insist upon it as a place we can go again and again um we also we have to live that together if we're whole with um a greater and greater capacity for honesty about what is hard what our suffering is what the questions we haven't been asking the answer you know the the openings we haven't necessarily been pursuing with others or ourselves, you know, it comes back to this complexity of reality. But I do think that we learn again and again that it's that it is when we actually meet the sharp edges of reality um, when we let, can let pain and fear show themselves. Um, that's when they can start to be met and held and accompanied. Um, and that we learn that about ourselves as well. And all of that is true at the same time. Yeah. And um, one thing that I think about, it, you know, I was I was reading something, an article that said, um, and this is about belongings, but day after day, we fan the flames of belonging by nurturing our bonds, mm -hmm. by finding solace in each other's humanity that someone else has walked through my pain, but someone else has also tasted my joy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, fanning those flames of belonging. Um, so why is belonging so crucial to remaking our world? Yeah, I mean, again, I think belo belonging is, is our true nature. It's, I mean, the civil rights elders used to talk about remembering with a hyphen remembering you know embodying this thing that has always been true and we have to make it physically true again i mean you know it's hard for us to feel our belonging even even sometimes in our you know circles of kindred passions and interests and worlds and it's almost impossible right now to imagine our belonging um to people across the spectrum of our society, politically, socially. Um, but I think, let's say, you know, we, one thing, one thing that I feel is rising up in consciousness, um, that more and more of us are just understanding and even sensing is our belonging to the natural world, right? And, and in new, in a whole new way. Um, even those of us who loved nature before, right? <laughs> Um, we're understanding something that has always been true. And I mean, understanding even sensor in a sensory way. It's not that we are in the natural world. We are of it. Right? We are, we are of it. It is us. And again, this has been always true. For most of the history of our species, it wasn't even, there, there was no distinction. There have been people and cultures and wisdom traditions that have always kept this knowing. But there's also been this time of incredible alienation and estrangement and, um, and an, and an extractive, destructive relationship that our species in got into with the natural world of which we are part. I, I think that that's, that same reality is true of us as people, as peoples. 
how how do we how do we get to a place where that where that consciousness emerges us where that where we where we could imagine what it would mean to start to remember um, our belonging to each other as human beings. I know you know one thing I like to talk about is that when we don't have answers, when to when to force an answer to a question, when to be to deny the gravity of the question. What we're called to do is live the question itself, and to me, that's a question. That's a question I live, and that's a question I think we we the great we. Um, those of us who care about justice and belonging, we have to live into that question of if we if we are if this kinship is actually more real than the fracture. You know, I think how do we walk towards that? And it is there is no roadmap right now. That's really beautiful to think about um, what kinship could do to heal some of those fractures. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the folks on this call are really working on equity centered change and um, a piece of that. So so we're moving into our question and answer time and folks have been asking some questions. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear your perspective on how folks can think about centering healing in the context of equity centered collaborative work more specifically. So yeah. how might we do that as center healing when we're doing equity centered work? Yeah, and I guess there's there's healing of oneself, which um, in in I think in in some ways is a, is a very tall order, especially even and especially for people who may be engaged in healing the world around them. It feel and just having a life. Um, in some ways, some of us are worse at that <laughs> than we might be at. Um, at investing in in healing care towards um, others and towards the world around us, but I think what we're talking about is how do we make both of those moves? And but I actually I actually do think I mean it's such a huge question, right? It's such a huge question and it's so complicated. And the truth is that you know in any given you know Brian Stevenson talks about getting proximate getting proximate getting proximate and really what that's about is that we can only really know like what that actual tangible next step is if we really are looking at the deep particularity of circumstances and people and but I I guess the one thing so I feel like I can't offer a lot of wisdom for a lot of those particular situations, but I, I, I think what I would say just from my vantage point and my life of conversation is don't underestimate how much you, you can benefit your ability to be a healing presence in the midst of that place where you're also seeking justice and, and equity and, and there are things, there are fights to be fought, but don't underestimate how much your uh, you seizing space for your own healing will be precisely what will give you the resources for that healing presence to be part of all that mix of things you're bringing to the world around you. Just one thing. <laughs> Yes, and um, I think you're right. You know, when we talk about, we were talking about some of Trisha Hershey's work and, um, you know, as rest as resistance and what it takes sometimes to do that healing work, right? And sometimes the healing work is self-care. Sometimes the healing work is digging deeper into our experiences. And for some folks, it's it's um, digging deeper into racial trauma, um, digging deeper into intergenerational trauma. Um, and as we think about that, a lot of times for some folks, it's spirituality, right? And I know you ask your um, your guests when they're on the show about the spiritual backgrounds of their youth. And um, but a question that came in was, how might you speak about the role of spirituality in remaking our world? Yeah, you know, spirituality is also just this word that means everything and nothing so i you know but i kind of like how do we and of course and of course different people um we we are differently located in traditions um i think fewer and fewer of us are actually growing up with some 
deep well of spiritual practice and tradition and community, even that we can reject, right? <laughs> so, but, but still, many of us have, have webs and we have traditions and we have sacred texts. We have rituals that are, they're part of our consciousness. We have that kind of formation. Um, and so that is spirituality. And, um, you know, it's like, I think it's, I think it's, it's helpful to say, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about spirituality? We're also talking at a really basic level. It's just about inner life, interior life. Um, who are we, uh, when we are alone and quiet? Right. Um, it's it's that investment in um, this very strange business of being human and the thoughts in our head and the connection between our thoughts and our bodies and our emotions and everything that's ever happened to us and and yeah, generational stories that are alive in us. So, you know, spiritual life is also even for people who might not like the language of spirituality. Um, it's really about attending to our humanity and, you know, wholeness um, is, is yes, about our presence to the world. And it's about our presence. Um, it's about our, it's about our, con- our consciousness, right? And, and so that's another way to talk about what's happening when we talk about spirituality. I, I, you know, and I, my kind of baseline definition of, of spirituality at its best is uh, befriending reality. You know, that complexity where we started. Um, I think all the things that constitute spiritual life, including just getting quiet, including just breathing consciously, and also the rituals that we have and the teachings and texts that we have. Um, these, in fact, although, you know, spirituality, I think, can be considered to be abstract or squishy or a refuge, really what these traditions are at their best, these practices, this is about helping us get centered and quiet so that we can actually stand before that complexity and work with it. Um, what is the Sufis, you know, the, the, what they call the whirling dervishes, like, like, um, oh, I can't remember who talked to me about this, and I don't know why it just came to me, but this kind of spinning, moving while staying still, <laughs> staying still while moving, which is something that an activist needs to do, I'd be able to do, and a parent needs to be able to do. That, all of that is spirituality. And if you, if you define it in its fullness, of course this is essential. Like, we can't be whole without some dimensionality to that. You know, when you said that some folks think about spirituality as squishy, um, we have um, some partners and dear friends at the Collective Change Lab that are doing work about the relational, um, about relational systems change, right? How being in right relationship with each other is really what leads to transformation. And one of the things that they talk about is bringing the sacred back into our spaces. Yeah. Um, and, and what that means for folks and, you know, being sacred, you know, bringing the sacred into those spaces, it might have a lot of personal meaning. Yeah. Um, but for you, like, what would that look like? What would it look like to bring the sacred um, into the spaces that we're in? You know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot. Like, I think the word sacred. Um, so there are these there's language. I also think the word soul. I, I feel like even in our our relatively secularized age, there's certain, there's some pieces of language that help us that actually land, you know, they land even in, even when there's a suspicion and and sometimes a very uh, reasonable um, estrangement from this, from this part of life, from these traditions. And yeah, I mean, so I think the sacred, so I think absolutely. And, you know, an interesting exercise for that would be, um, just getting concrete about all the things that that, what does that mean? You know, what is sacred to you? That is such an interesting question. And for a lot of people, it's other human beings and their goodness and their beauty that is sacred, right? This, um, so I, I love that. And I think, I think if that's brought in, it, it deserves a, a bit of interrogation and, um, it's also about ritual often, the sacred. And, you know, 
we need ritual at a creaturely level, right? This is this is something like we're rediscovering, we're remembering. I was just recently talking to someone, um, or I, I might have heard during this meeting someone say that they start every meeting with ritual, right? Mm -hmm. And that ritual is checking in with each other. They never jump into the work without yeah. checking in with each other as humans first. Um, and so that, you know, um, she talked about there was a person who was really resistant to coming to these meetings and she thought, I do not like these first 15 minutes of check-in, let's get to the work. And this person after time began to want to come to these meetings yeah. and because of the ritual, right, the relationships that were formed because of that ritual are really what brought her to that table. Um, so there is something really beautiful, right, about rituals. Um, and to your point, like really bringing the sacred into our spaces. Um, yeah. And we can define what that means for ourselves. Yes. And it, I think to me that also gets at where do we plant? Where do we plant the beginning of a meeting or a gathering? Right. And where do we plant it in ourselves? One thing we do in our workspace and we used to do it in person and now we do it on Zoom. It's just different person leads every time and they may read a poem or they, but, but the main ritual is just three breaths. Um, this does not take a lot of time. Um, maybe an offering of a poem or something they want to say, very short, but then we turn off our screens and everybody takes three breaths. It's like when I start a conversation, the very first question is really important and not be, not necessarily because it's going to get the best answer, but where does that question plant the other person inside themselves? So where are they grounded as we proceed? So I think that's what a ritual does too. It's about how everybody is going to show up for the rest of the of the gathering. And there's there's ancient wisdom in this, right? This is time tested. <laughs> So one of the questions that came into the chat um, is about what are your thoughts? You know, uh, many of us are working in spaces that are uh, very polarized, right? When it comes to ideologies and beliefs and um, what we think about what the world should look like. Um, and so can you share your thoughts on ways to work with those who might not share the same values or beliefs or desired outcomes? How have you seen um, that play out in terms of like, what can we do in the, in those situations? Yeah, so so I want to bracket this by saying none of us is called to put ourselves in 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 danger, right? Like some of, some people do have that calling, but I I think when I talk about being with people we disagree with or we feel estranged from, um, there there's the element of this person might hurt me or this person hates me, right? That's that's not what I'm talking about here. But that's actually not true most of the time. The people we see on TV, the people who are terrible on Twitter, um, they're not most people. Um, so if, if what's at stake is not danger, but discomfort and perplexity, um, curiosity is a moral muscle. It's an ancient social art and technology. And, you know, I think a, a, t a terrible thing that's happened in our culture, in American culture, is that a it's like the act of being curious about the other side has come to stand for some kind of complacence or complicity or, you know, that you're, you're capitulating, like you're, you're, you're acknowledging that they're somehow that what they stand for has, has dignity. And that's that's not what I'm talking like. That's not what curiosity is about. I I do think that curiosity, as a baseline, says that other human beings have dignity, and I sure may not see it, and it may not be represented in what I know of them. But one of the things we know about humanity more and more through science is that every one of us is a living, breathing contradiction. And whatever I know about another person who is also still a stranger about what they believe or what party they belong to or who they voted for or, you know, this thing they're associated with. And, and a way that I think that we can all be assured of that is if we think about our circles of the people we love the most, the people we've known the longest, like our expanded circle of friends, family members, cousins, you know, old friends, new friends, colleagues, 
we know that uh, there is such a range in that spectrum between people who, you know, if we're lucky, we have a soulmate. But even with our closest family members, you know, the, the, there's so much, it, it has nothing to do with always feeling understood or always understanding. What's, what's different is that, or what is, what is defining is that we have chosen to stay in relationship with these people. And sometimes staying in relationship with them means not saying what you're thinking or not saying it now or actually just not really liking them very much and certainly not feeling like you love them, but love is that action. It's those things you do because we're in a relationship and I love you and it's and it's and it's 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 action rather than feelings. So if we can just apply a fraction of that knowledge of complexity to if we've chosen to be in a space, right, with someone who's on an, another side or in another kind of identity that we are estranged from in terms of our identity culturally. Um, you know, honestly, that question about, about where does it hurt, that's not always a question you can start with. But if we can start with questions that get at the humanity of another person, um, if they use a word, and boy, does this happen a lot now, like they use a word or a phrase that just sets us off. If we're in a situation to be able to take a deep breath and just say, what does that word mean? When you say that word, what does that mean for you? I mean, with, in a spirit of actually wanting to understand I, I think we will often be surprised because, you know, even a single word or a phrase, we're so complicated, right? Like we all have so many connotations for things and they don't match the connotations other people bring. You know, when you um, when you talk about what words mean, um, Mark Morgan put into the chat, we've been talking about healing, but we haven't defined it. Um, so how do we define healing? Um, you know, I just recently interviewed this, our wonderful Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, and he is a physician, and um, one of the most important distinctions that's been made in all my life of conversation that he made again is about the distinction between fixing, curing, and healing, which is a distinction in medicine, it's a distinction in society, and, you know, let's just say we're 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 really formed and trained to fix and solve and cure um but the thing even a a human being doesn't become whole by being fixed or be, being perfect like we we become whole in and through all the things that happened to us uh including what went wrong including the wounds that we will never get away with but we can be healed and whole we we are healed and whole with those things um he said, Vivek Murthy said, um, healing is about three things. Now, is it I think he said listening and learning and listening. I almost want to look it up. I know that listening and loving were two of them. And I, you know, when I say loving again, I'm not talking about that love. Like, I know you, or you're my child, or you're my parent, or you're my lover, right? I love you. This is love as action. It's a way of being. It's not a way of feeling. It's what do we, what do I do? I may not agree with you, but you are a human being, you know, so I, so I, I extend care. And that is also what love looks like. I, I, I think he's right. I mean, I think, and I think that, that, you know, healing, I, we, yeah, as human beings, we, want and need to be seen and we want and need to be heard and we all have had experiences where we feel incomplete and and we're we're needing that to happen and so somehow healing healing is about is about all of that um it's about everything that happens and and who we can be on the other side of everything that happens that is true um to the truest part of ourselves Someone just put in the chat, thank you. Uh, to be a healer, you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to love. So um, we have about five more minutes. Kristen, thank you so much for the generosity of your time. 
you know, this is another, as we go back and, you know, a lot of the questions are really about healing. And I think it's something that's so crucial to the work that we're doing, as we mentioned in the beginning, particularly around racial equity. And this question is, we've talked about individual healing. What does it look like to collectively heal, right, as a society, um, to take that individual healing um, and the way that we show up in spaces to what you were saying earlier, to be a healer, right, and potentially to really heal together? Like, what does that look like? Gosh, I wish I had an answer to that question. I, I think... I think this is where the critical yeast idea comes in. It's really important. I, I don't, especially with the depth of um, of estrangement um, that really defines uh, a lot of our societies now, a lot of our communities. Uh, you know, I, I think, again, like that's almost the mode of fixing or curing to say we're going to heal this thing because we won't it won't be very deep, even if we get some kind of surface thing going. But I think the work of starting in a small circle, like a small radius, um, and finding, you know, looking for and finding those few people who may be outside my comfort zone, um, you know, on the other side of some division, um, but where where we could actually meet as human beings and get to that place where where I could ask you the question and you could ask me the question of where does it hurt and it would be safe for us to be honest with each other and to get to know each other at that level and then see what can follow that I you know it sounds ineffectual because we really we really do like the critical mass right but I think that in it's it's in these immediate you know doable webs of relationship that we can create something where we start to have an answer. We start to have answers to that question, tools to work with. What if what did it look like if I had healing in this three, this group of three people or five people or ten people? And create something that becomes um infectious in a good way. <laughs> that word infectious is a little bit ruined. Um, you know, magnetic. Um I, I think that's where we have to start. And and then how you know those have those as incubators and laboratories, right? For us gaining intelligence about what would it look like to do this in wider and wider circles. You know, there are a couple of questions that came in about. Um, we know yesterday when we heard from Amani Barber, and one of she one of the things that she talked about is that we legislate disabled folks into poverty, right? So if you really think about the work that we do around systems change, it's about those politics and policies and and, and just the way public programs. Yeah. And there's part of me that thinks it goes to what you're saying is, what would it look like if folks that were really working on healing were also the folks that were seeing everyone's humanity which were also those folks that were creating these policies and these yeah. public programs. I'm just curious, like what what comes up for you as we ask, um, as as yeah. we reflect on that. Well, that's why I loved having a surgeon general who talks about love as a public good, right? And so, and that's another reason. So everything he said was great, but what was also great is having this person who does hold high government office, who's wearing a kind of military uniform that goes with that office, and talking about being a healer. Um, you know, even like Ruth Wilson Gilmore has that language of, it's just, again, here, this is for me, the power of words, which for me is this power that we all carry around and we could wield so much more. I mean, we, we actually know how to wield words as weapons, but words as, as something with healing power, you know, organized abandonment is a way she describes what you described, right? But somehow, because we think of it as policies, or we think of, think of it as economic development, right? It masks what's happening at a human level. And just using this language like gives you eyes to see. So, so yeah, so what happens if we can raise up? And I do, I want to say, I think it's a new generation. You know, my generation, we, we were 20th century people. 
Um, so I think it's a new generation that starts to see with new eyes, and then if and then if you come at at being a public servant, um, I'm not saying I'm not saying nothing can happen now. I'm just saying I think the reality is there has there is a real generational shift here. There's like it's a real we don't need social change. We need social evolution. You know that's and that and it's happening. And this you're you're gathering. This is this is what's happening here. Um, but it's slower than we want it to be because it's big. It's a shift. It's tectonic. Krista, I'm so sad that our conversation's coming to a close because I've been enjoying this so much. And I'm sure that, I mean, all of the chats and the questions that are coming in, obviously, are everyone listening and with us today have been enjoying it. Um, what is one thing that you hope that folks will take away from your work? From my work? Um well, that's an interesting. Thank you for that question. I, I, I'll just. I'm sure I'd think of ten answers if we talked longer. But maybe just this, because um, you got me thinking about this too. Um, you know, I don't often interview celebrities. I really look for um, the people who are, and they're everywhere, who are, you know, just below that radar of sound bites and. Uh, you know, what's the language, you know, talking heads and like the people who get quoted all the time and we know their names and we're, and there's nothing wrong with celebrities. But I guess change, and I mean change in the term, sense of evolution, never happens from that level. That's just not how it works across history. It's happening in the margins it's happening around the edges it's happening on the ground and so when i'm looking for i'm always looking for the people who um you know my definition of wisdom is as opposed to somebody who's not you know a wise person may be knowledgeable and they may be accomplished but i think knowledge and accomplishment are things we can point at right we quantify we know that or they've done this but if you think about and we can all think about this who are the wise people who come to mind the measure of a wise life is the imprint they've made on people around them, right? That's what we start to think of, how they affected this person and that person and set these ripples in motion. And I think if we can take that much more seriously um, and, and you know, look for the, the people who are actually touching lives and setting those ripples in motion, and know that that really is where the action is in a very, very significant way across time. And yes, take in that narrative of catastrophe and of glitz, but know that that is one center of power and this is another. And the more we attend to that and give it, this, give it its due seriousness, we, we build up that power. That's so powerful because what the folks on this call are doing is really building community power. And um, they are these people, right? So I want to say this is another, this is gravity. This is power too. And, but if we don't take ourselves seriously, if you don't take yourself seriously, like that's, it has to start there too. And it's really hard. It's counterintuitive. But I think that's a muscle we have to get. And it's a reality-based muscle. Well, Krista, I, um, I am so grateful and overjoyed to have been able to have this fireside chat with you. It's been edifying in so many ways, and I hope that the folks um, on the call today have, have, really found, um, have really found some peace here today, have found their respite in this conversation, have been able to um, take a step back and, um, and just be with us in their full wholeness. Um, and yeah, I can't thank you enough. I, I've, I, I never thought in my life I'd be having a conversation with you, and here I am. So, well, I'm very honored by your questions and to be here. And thank you so much. I and I, yeah, just uh, this is this is this is real. It's powerful, and I see it, and others see it, and we can see it ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode, including a full transcript of this keynote discussion. 
we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stilquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. In forum news, we're excited to share that registration is open for our fall workshop series, titled Essentials for Collective Impact. This is a new series of online workshops focused on building practical knowledge and understanding around four key areas that support collective impact efforts. These focus areas are collaborative planning and engagement, facilitating results-focused meetings, strengthening trust and relationships, and avoiding common challenges that stymie the work of collectives. If you would like to join us, you can register for the full series of workshops or just the topics that interest you most. You can find out more about this online workshop series in the events section of our website at collectiveimpactforum.org. One note is that registration for the full series closes on September 8th, so we recommend registering soon to save your spot. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast producer. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.